0: Today's scripture comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Morning, everyone. You guys doing all right today? All right, you got snacks, you got food? I do. I got I got water and I got extra water down there. We also have a contingency plan for the candles in case they burn too low. So what all that tells you is that we may be a little long this morning. So uh, sorry, not sorry. That's all I got for you this morning. Uh, we're talking about the Trinity, and that's a topic that takes a little bit longer for us to get through this morning. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but before we get there, you guys know I'm a nerd, right? Okay, good. I'm glad that we've had that established so far that you guys know that I'm a nerd. Well, one day when my beard turns white, and it's getting there. This year I've had, you know, 15 to 20 white hairs in my beard. The hair has already migrated south for the winter. Uh, but one day when my beard gets old and white, uh, I want to be a professor. That's my, like, backup retirement plan once, you know, pastoring goes south and, you know, just kidding. Uh, but I, I want to be a professor one day, and I want to help uh, train the next generation of mission and pastors. And I know that I'm not going to be a cool professor like Dr. Roz. You know, Dr. Raz up here playing the guitar, he's the cool professor of finance. That's not going to be me at all. We just know that that's not going to happen. I'm going to be the professor where you learn a lot, but you're going to dread going to class because there's going to be lots of work. But I have decided that I'm going to have two stamps for when I'm grading papers. And those two stamps, uh, they're going to be pretty great. One of them is going to be a stamp of Gandalf, and it will say, "'You shall not pass.'" I hope I don't have to use that stamp very often, but uh, I suspect that I'll have to use it occasionally. And then the other stamp that I want to have is one that just says heresy. So I uh, have uh, you know some professors that I follow online, and one of them has a heresy stamp, and I loved it from the first moment that I saw it. Now, I know that uh, all of you guys, I wouldn't have to use that on. You guys would all get gold stars, A pluses, all of that. But I suspect I'll have to use it Occasionally, At least statistically, that's what uh, we come to find out, is that unfortunately, though we hope that no one believes heretical beliefs about God, uh, the statistics show us otherwise. And in fact, up to 73% of evangelical Christians in America are heretics. And that's not good. That's not, that's not where you go, amen! No, we do not amen there at all. Uh, that's what statistics tell us. So what is a heretic? It's someone who holds a major belief about God incorrectly. And we're not talking about the uh, agree to disagree types of thing, but we're talking about a denial of a fundamental truth about God that would put us at odds with about 2,000 years of theological belief in the church. So it's not a good thing to be a heretic. So if you get my stamp on your paper one day, not a good thing. Not, a, not one of those ones that goes on the fridge afterwards, all right? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to play the game of who in here is a heretic. You guys ready for for that game this morning? I, I'm just kidding. Like, we're we're going to play the game, but like, I'm not going to throw you out right afterwards. We're not going to have like a heretic burning party afterwards. None of that. So it's safe. I'm not even going to make you guys yell out your answers. So you can internalize the answer so that no one beside you has to know. So I have two statements that I want us to go through this morning. And these statements are in a survey that was given out. It's been given out for uh, the last... Uh, eight years or so, and every two years we get updated results about these statements. And so statement number one is this, it's, uh, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And this, we're going to agree or we're going to disagree with that. So I'll give you just a moment to finalize your answers and that you can all then say it's disagree. The correct answer here is disagree. Jesus was a great teacher and he is God. Now, the unfortunate reality about this statement is in a survey that was done this year among evangelical Christians, 43% of those surveyed said that they agreed with the statement. 43% agreed with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So let's look at statement number two. This is uh, the next one. Jesus is the first And greatest being created by God. Do we agree or do we disagree with this? Yep, we're going to disagree again. We're going to disagree here. Jesus is not a created being. He is the first, he is the greatest, but he is not a created being. He is the eternal son of God. And that's the topic that we're going to be exploring this morning a bit more. Now, the problem with this statement is it's even worse than the previous one. If we, on the previous one, four out of every ten people got it wrong. On this one, seven out of every ten people got this question. Wrong. And I know that some of them probably just misread the question, or at least I'm hoping that a large percentage of them misread the question, um, but unfortunately, that's an awfully high percentage. And that tells us that um, there are some things that have gone wrong in American Christianity. These statements aren't things that we agree to disagree on. They're not these things where we can be like, okay, yeah, that's fine, like the color of the carpet. These are fundamental truths about the Christian faith that we must But I'm going to give everyone an out, just a very, very tiny out this morning. In the last hundred years in American Christianity, and the last 50 years even more so, the church has done a very lousy job at theological education. We have done a terrible job at theological education, teaching theology to the general masses. In our efforts to simplify the truths about Christianity, we've thrown out way too much of the meat, and it's resulted in people that know how to behave morally, but don't know the fundamental truths about who God is. As a church, we've gone astray there. Theological education is not just for pastors— It's not just for missionaries, it's for all Christians. All of us are theologians, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, that does not sound good. Well, all of us have thoughts about God, and if you have thoughts about God, congratulations, you're a theologian. So theological education is not just for pastors, not just for missionaries, it's for all of us. And we used to, in the church, do a great job of teaching theology. It used to be commonplace to learn theology through a series of questions and answers known as catechism. We would have these books of catechisms and we would give them out to all of our people. A.B. Simpson, who founded the Christian and Missionary Alliance, The way that he learned a lot of the faith was through reading a catechism. He read the questions and answers that were present in a catechism, learned the fundamental truths about who God is and was able to apply them. So some of the most popular catechisms are the Westminster Catechism. And if that seems too long for you, don't worry, there's a shorter version of it where they cut out a few questions to make it a little bit easier. Or there's the Heidelberg Catechism where you can look at these questions. And they're basic questions of uh, what is our only hope in life and death. That's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 1 goes. And the answer is that we are not our own, that our only hope in life and death is that we belong to Jesus Christ. Those are the types of things that are inside of catechism. They teach us the theological truths of the Christian faith. And so today don't worry we're not going through a catechism. We're not going to be learning questions and answers this morning, Uh, but what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to give you a bit of a theological education. And so we're going to be talking about the Trinity. We're going to go a bit rich this morning in theology. We're going to chew on a lot of stuff, and we're going to be diving into the idea of Jesus, the uncreated Messiah. We're talking about what it means that we worship God in Trinity, That we don't just worship a random God, but we worship the Trinitarian God. And what we mean by Trinity is we mean one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And now there are a lot of illustrations that we could use to talk about the Trinity this morning. There's a lot of them that we could use and we could think about to try and help us understand what the Trinity is like. We could try to describe the Trinity like states of water, where water can be solid or liquid or gas. Or we could try to describe the Trinity like the sun, where you have the star, you have heat, and you have light. Or you could maybe talk about the Trinity like a three-leaf clover, where you have three distinct leaves and part of one clover. Or maybe you could try and describe it like a man who is husband, father, and son all at the same time. Have you guys heard any of those illustrations before, right? They're illustrations that, that help us to, to maybe try and understand the Trinity a little bit better. Well, I've got bad news for you this morning. They all fail to adequately describe the Trinity, and they actually get really close to being heresy, if not being downright heretical in themselves. And so what I want to give you just this brilliant line this morning, the Trinity is a divine mystery, okay? We're not, you're not going to come out of this morning knowing everything that you could possibly know about the Trinity, because that's impossible, as soon as we start trying to illustrate the Trinity with these simple to understand illustrations, we get very close to committing heresy. And I had to do very uh, hard work during talking about all of those illustrations to not look at Abby Darkest Berkey, because she's the one who showed me this brilliant video that's my all-time favorite video, and Renata as well, because I showed her the video this week. But I'm going to give you guys something to watch. I'm not going to show it this morning. I couldn't get licensing rights for it, and I probably would offend it half of you anyway if I did show it. Uh, But if you Google St. Patrick heresy later today, not right now, don't watch it in the middle of the sermon, but watch it later. It's one of my favorite videos of all time because it's about St. Patrick, who's a missionary in the church. He's a missionary to Ireland in the 400s, and he's taking the good news of Jesus to people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And so in this quick three-minute long video, you have St. Patrick talking to two Irish farmers who are telling him, hey, St. Patrick, uh, can you tell me more about this trinity? And remember that we are simple folk who have never heard anything about the trinity before. And so what St. Patrick does is he goes and he uses those illustrations to try and talk about the trinity to people that have no clue about the trinity. And after each time he uses one of the illustrations, the farmers just look at him straight-faced, and they call him out on his heresy. They'll say, that's modalism, Patrick, or that's Arianism, Patrick, and so on and so on. It's just great. It's a riotous time where hopefully you guys will laugh as much as I do. Probably not going to happen, but it's a grand old time that I encourage you to spend three minutes on this afternoon. Finally, after St. Patrick has exhausted all of his really bad analogies, he says this, He says, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed which summed up states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. And then the farmers brilliantly respond to Patrick, well, why didn't you just say so? So I think we all got that, right? We we fully understand the statement that that Saint Patrick just made, right? Okay, maybe not. Uh, maybe it's a bit uh, it's a bit. High- It's a bit high level for us. It's difficult for us to understand. And so hopefully this morning we'll be able to understand that a little bit better. But the first thing, the first and most basic thing that we must understand about the Trinity is that we must confess that the Trinity is something that's beyond our human understanding. That's the first thing that we must confess about the Trinity. We can't fully grasp God as Trinity, And this is good news for us because God is not finite. He is not neatly explained, and that's good news for us. But that's not to say that we don't know anything about the Trinity. Scripture has a lot for us about the nature of God as Trinity, and therefore it's something that we must pay attention to and something that we must believe. In uh, his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves, one of those ones that I recommended to you guys last week, he says this brilliant little thing. He says, the Trinity is not some inessential add-on to God, some optional software that can be plugged into him. The Trinity is an essential belief for us as Christians— It's an essential doctrine of God to know that this God that we worship is not a random God. He's not one God among many gods. He is the Trinitarian God that is fully represented in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He's not primarily creator. He is primarily Trinity. He's primarily a God of love, who before he created anything has been the Father, loving the Son, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that makes a huge difference for us. And so that's a long introduction to get us to our scripture this morning, but I think it's helpful to frame the conversation that we're having. And so we're going to be diving into the mystery of the Trinity. We're going to be mainly in John 1 this morning, and we're going to take some pit stops along the way. We're going to stop in Colossians 1, Genesis 1, as well as some early Christian doctrinal statement along the way. So does that sound good to you guys? Okay, if it doesn't sound good, well, just, I'm sorry, you're here anyway, so you might as well have a good time and get excited about it. So I want to go ahead and reread John 1, 1 through 5, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of time in this morning on these first five verses. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, when we're looking at the four Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's Gospel is very different than any of the others. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels. They're very similar to one another. But John is a very different type of Gospel. And he actually starts his Gospel very differently than the others. He starts by writing, "...in the beginning." And this is purposely done to draw your minds back to Genesis 1. What John is trying to do is he's trying to remind you that Genesis, the creation story, starts with those Same three words, in the beginning. And what John is trying to do with this is he's trying to set the record straight about the God who existed in the beginning. He's trying to give you more knowledge about the God who creates in Genesis 1 and 2. So let me reread verse 1 again for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there are three fundamental truths in this first verse for us. Number one is this, that the Word existed in the beginning. This is the first thing that John is telling us. And this statement in itself is not a revolutionary sort of statement. It's not a revolutionary concept to John's original audience. Jewish belief at the time, historians would note, like Dr. Craig Keener, that they would believe that God's Word, the the Word itself, would have existed before creation, but would have been a created thing itself by God. So when when John says that in the beginning was the word, it's not necessarily a revolutionary thought because they would have believed that the word came before creation. But what is revolutionary about it is that John doesn't just say it was the first thing that's created. He says in the beginning was the word. He's saying that before everything else, that it existed in the beginning. He doesn't say in the beginning was God and then God created the Word. That's not what he says. In the beginning was the Word. But he doesn't just stop here. He goes on to say the second statement that the Word was with, was with God. And this is where we begin getting into the revolutionary concept, where where John is rewriting what it means to believe that God is one. As one commentary notes, the Greek word uh, for with is a word that literally means toward. It's something that implies a face-to-face relationship. When we see that God or the Word was with God, it's saying that the Word was with God in relationship. He wasn't just a created thing. He wasn't just something going forth from God, but was there in relationship with God. In other words, what John is doing here is he's showing that the Word is personified, that he is a person and not just a mere creation or not just a subset of God, but is a person within God. He is with God and able to converse and commune with God. But he's not just a mere creation, but he exists with God outside of creation. And this is important for us because statement number three is where John just fully clarifies it for you. He says, the Word was God. This is the scandalous statement that John's gospel begins with. That the Word is God. Not just with God, not just in the beginning, but the Word was God. That the Word is a distinct person and is in the beginning with God and is God. Not a creation, but integral to who God is. He is not a God or one God among many gods. He is fully God. But at the same time, while the Word or the Son is fully God, He, uh, not all of God is the Word, if, if that makes sense for us. So the, the Son or the Word is fully God, but not all of God is just this one person, the Word. The Father and the Spirit remain distinct persons within the Godhead, though each being fully God themselves. And so that's a complicated thing for us to try and understand. And again, we don't have uh, great little illustrations, but I do have a little diagram that I want to put up that uh, I found online that kind of helps us to see this. We have God in the center, which is the central essence or the central substance of the Godhead. And we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have the Son is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. And this is complicated and it's difficult for us to understand, but remember, the Trinity is a divine mystery. But this helps us to better see what we're talking about, at least visually, this morning. Inside of God, there are three distinct persons with one essence or one substance. The Father is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, who is not the Father, but all three persons exist as one divine being. And to make sure that we understand this, John reiterates it in John 1-2. He repeats saying, he was with God in the beginning. And what John is trying to do, he's using a common way of speaking in the ancient world. He's reiterating himself to show you something that's important. He was with God in the beginning. And what he's trying to do is make sure that we're not falling into any false belief. He's trying to tell us that the Word is with God in the beginning. They were there in the beginning. They're not created. He's not a created thing, but he's with God in the beginning. And this helps us to understand that when we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all of them exist in the beginning of God. Each of them are God and are with God, but none of them on their own represent the totality of God. And I know we're we're going very deep. I know we're going uh, to the theological level this morning, but it's important for us to go there. And And I hope at the end of the day, we'll kind of understand this. I love how Michael Reeves describes it. He says that God is Trinity. He is the Father loving and giving life to the Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. If that's a concept, if all of this is above where we're understanding this morning, I hope that we can at least come away with that. That God is God the Father, loving and giving life to God the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That is who God is at his core because God is a God of love. He's not essentially a creator God because if he was essentially a creator God, that means he would be incomplete outside of himself. But if he is essentially a God of love and he is a Trinitarian God, then he is complete. He doesn't have to create in order to love because you have three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, loving and giving life to God the Son, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So what was God doing before creation? He was loving and giving life to the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's who God is at his core. So let's read John 1.3 again, because it helps to shed some more light uh, on what's going on. It's really essential that we understand that the Word or the Son of God is uncreated. So listen to it again. Through him, the Word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And what John is doing in this statement is he's imploring some logic for us. He, he's gone ahead and made some statements in verses 1 and 2, and now he's imploring some logic for us to help us see that the Son or the Word is not a created being. So what he says is he says that all things, and that all is important, all things were made through him, and that nothing that was made that has been made was made without him. Right? So, the, the Son was in the beginning. All things were made through him. Nothing that was made has been made without him. So, therefore, he was not made. It's a logic problem that, that John is giving us here. All things were made through the Son. Nothing that was made was made without him. Therefore, the Son is not a created being. If all things have been made through him, he cannot be a made thing. What John is trying to clearly tell us is that the Word or the Son has existed with God in unity for all creation. He is creator as much as the Father is also creator and the glory of creation. You and I, the mountains, the seas, everything within it, the glory of all that belongs to both the Father and the Son. He has existed with God throughout all ages. He has created all things with God. They are united in all that they do. Now listen to John 1-4 again, because this is another beautiful homage back to the creation story. He says this, in him the word was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating men. And there are two very key things that are recorded, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2, that help us to, to better understand what's at play here in John 1-4. The first is in Genesis 1-27. I don't think we have it up there, so you have to pull out your Bible and flip to it. It's at the very beginning for you. So Genesis 1-27 verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the second key thing comes, just flip the page over to Genesis 2, verse 7. says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The light of all mankind is the word. We are created in the image of God by the image of God, animated to life by life himself. God has created us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have created us, loving and giving life to us in the same way that there is the divine love of the Father and the Son throughout all eternity. I want to read, and we'll take our first pit stop here, our second, third pit stop here. We've already gone to Genesis, so... We're going to go to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here because when we're talking about the Trinity and we're talking about uh, the sun being an uncreated thing, uh, eventually we're going to come across Colossians 1 and we may confuse ourselves if we don't fully understand it. And so I want to spend some time here and help us to throw the objection out first so that way we can uh, solve for it. So Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says this, and this is noted as the Christ hymn. Now, if we're reading this, we can get to that word firstborn and get a little confused by it. And so I want to spend some time helping us to better understand what Paul means by firstborn in this context. Because inevitably, we're going to think, well, if the son is uncreated, how is he also the firstborn? And I just want to say that's a great question. If you have that question, it's a great one. So it's not one of those where you're like, how could you even ask that? Come on, Patrick. It's not like that at all. It's a great question for us to to ask. But in order to fully answer it, in in order to fully understand, we need the context surrounding it to understand. That's why we read all of 15 through 20. Because though he is said to be the firstborn in verse 15, in verse 16, it's said that all things were created in him, things visible and invisible, things in heaven and on earth. So he is firstborn, but all things were created by him and in him. Things visible and invisible, things on the earth and things in heaven. And so what we learn from that is the Son logically cannot be a created being based on the context. If all things, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, were created in him and by him, then he can't be a created being. But at the same time, we don't deny that the Son is the firstborn. And so what do we mean by this word firstborn? Well, if we read on to verse 17 and 18, we begin to get a clear picture of it. It says this, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The word firstborn in verse 18 is the same as firstborn in verse 15. But the thing that I really want us to focus on is that word before that we see in verse 17 where it says he is before all things. Because that word before in Greek isn't a word that always means first as in creative or things to come first. It can also mean first in stature or authority. And in verse 18, we get a really clear picture of that because Paul, again, uses that word firstborn, but this time he calls the Son, or Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead. And if you've spent any amount of time in the Gospels, you'll be like, wait, hold on. How can Jesus be the firstborn among the dead when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Or when many others were, were said to have raised from the dead when Jesus is crucified. So how can Jesus be the firstborn from among the dead when there were others that were raised from the dead before him? Well, that's what's the beauty of context for us. We're, we're learning that that word firstborn isn't related to first in, in order all the time. As this thing came first, and then that, and then that, and then that. That's not the context that we see. Instead, what we see in verse 18 is that last little phrase. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Or that word supremacy can also be the word preeminence. So what Paul is ultimately saying is that the Son of God is the firstborn as it relates to authority, power, and glory. In the same way that a firstborn son in the ancient Near East cultures like the Hebrew culture would possess some of those things as well. They would be first in, in stature and authority. They'd be the one that are set above all things. So that that hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. I'm not going to ask you if it makes sense because I don't want you to say no to me this morning. Uh, what I want to do is I, I want to help us to maybe grasp it a little bit better and, and look at the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is a theological statement that was created in the 300s A.D. Our good friend St. Nicholas was present at the Council of Nicaea, legend holds, and he may or may not have slapped a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. We don't know for sure, but there's evidence both ways, so jolly old St. Nick wasn't always too jolly. Sometimes he has to slap a heretic when they deny the Trinity from time to time. Again, it may or may not have happened, but it's fun to to reminisce nonetheless. So I want to read a portion of the Nicene Creed, and this is a theological statement that the universal church of Christ across denominations would affirm if they're an orthodox-believing church. They would say this in the Nicene Creed about the Son of God. See, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, uh, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. This hopefully helps us to, to have a statement to grasp a hold of. This is one of those things where it's perfectly okay to take a picture of it on the screen so you can refer to it later or just Google it because, you know, Google also works really well. What we're seeing in this are some very crucial things about who the Son is. We see that he is the begotten Son, born of the Father before all Ages. If we would refer back to that uh, original graphic that we saw, we see that the, the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Father gives life to the Son. That's how they've existed throughout all eternity. So when we say that he is the only begotten Son, we're not saying that he is a made being, but he's born of the Father before all ages. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. And that makes us scratch our head. I'll be completely honest. It's one of those head scratchers where are like, I don't fully understand it. Again, the Trinity is a divine mystery. It's okay for us to not fully understand everything. Eternally, the Son has been begotten of the Father, and the Father has begotten the Son. It's not like the chicken and the egg problem for us. We don't need to know which one came first. We don't need to solve that. They eternally exist as the Father and the Son. And this theologically is what we refer to as the eternal generation of the Son from the Father. Now, there's one really interesting word within the Nicene Creed that you probably like, I have no clue what that means uh, because I don't know what it means unless I go to look it up from time to time. It's the word consubstantial. And maybe you guys are smarter than me. Maybe you do know what it means. It says that the son is consubstantial with the father. And this is the whole reason that St. Nicholas may or may not have slapped Arius at the council of Nicaea. Because Arius uh, denied that the Son and the Father were equal in essence, or, or, or one being. that they were uh, Arius would say that they were different, that the Son was completely different than the Father. But this word consubstantial means that they're one in substance, one in essence, one in nature. They're equal in glory, majesty, lordship, and being uncreated, and ultimately in measure. It's one Godhead, one substance among. The Godhead. And yes, it's a bit confusing to understand, but remember, divine mystery is what the Trinity is that we get to believe in by faith. And we don't believe in it by faith, we believe in the Trinity because of what the Son has accomplished for us. And that's the key thing to, to understanding the mystery of the Trinity is that ultimately we have a revelation that God is triune by the Son of God working salvation for us. So I want to speak to your heart a bit this morning. I want to look again at Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Because I think this is where we find the true beauty of this whole mystery. That in the Son, who is full of glory, of power, uh, of honor, that God was reconciling all things to himself. So let me read verse 19 and 20 again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the story of God. It's one of redemption. It's one of God himself coming to save his good creation. It's God coming towards us. God making a way when there was no way. Remember what John says in John 1, 4-5. He says, in him the word was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. At the time of Jesus, there was great darkness. It seemed like there was no hope. It seemed like there was no peace. And yet, darkness did not prevail because the light had come into the world. The bright light of Jesus, seen fully in his death and resurrection, leads us back to God. It's where we find our true rest. As St. Augustine said in his confessions, he said, You, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. What a beautiful line. We are created by God, imaged by God of the image himself. And we are restless until we find our rest in God. But thankfully, God didn't leave us wandering around to try and figure it out on our own. He came to us. God's light is greater than any darkness that's in this world. It's greater than any darkness that's in us. Yes, all of us have sinned. Yes, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we have disqualified ourselves from a relationship with the triune God because of our unholiness. And yet, and yet God has made a way. He didn't want to be the father loving the son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, by himself while his good creation perished. He made a way. He came near. He came close. He made a way that's not rooted in our human effort, but it's rooted in his effort. By God himself coming. By the uncreated Son of God taking on flesh as a man to live the life that we couldn't live to die the death that we deserve so that we can experience true life by faith in the eternal word of God. He came for us. Listen to John 1.14 again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He paraphrases it like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The eternal God. God of God. The God of love. saw our sorry state saw us in our sin, in our shame, in our brokenness, and said, I want to redeem them. I want to come close. And so he takes on flesh. He takes on blood. He moves into the neighborhood. God has come near to us. God himself has come near to us, taking on flesh and blood, becoming a real living man, being born in Bethlehem on Christmas Day. He came for you. Yes, you. He came for you. Listen to how St. Athanasius says it. He says, He has been manifested in a human body for this reason only, out of the love and goodness of his Father for the salvation of us men. The renewal of creation has been brought about by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who made it in the beginning. This is why it's crucial for us to understand the That the Son, Jesus himself, is uncreated. He created us in the beginning and he's brought about the way of the new creation. It's the same God throughout the entire story. The same one who created us is the same one who came to save us. The same one who came to forgive us and make us a new creation. There's no catch to it. Only that we must respond. Only that we must say yes. Let's turn back to John 1, 9 through 13. Yes, we're skipping around a little bit, but I think it helps us to fully grasp the picture that's here. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Son of God has made a way for us to become children of God. God himself has come to make himself known through Jesus. He has come near and we must respond to him. We must respond to him. And so my question for all of us today is, do you receive him as Lord and Savior? Do you receive him as Lord and Savior? Not did you grow up in a Christian home? Not have you gone to church? Not have you been baptized? Do you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? When thinking about Jesus, do you say, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist did? Do you receive him or do you reject him? Those are our two options. And the choice is ours. We have been given a revelation of God by God himself coming near to us in Jesus, living the life we couldn't, dying the death we deserved, being resurrected on the third day. We've been given a revelation of this Jesus. And so will we make him the Lord of our life or will we shrug him off? Either this Jesus Is the Lord of your all, or He isn't your Lord at all? If there's a part of you where you're like, Jesus, I like you, but please, please, I want to keep this. It's my sin. I like it. He's not Lord. Will you surrender everything to the God who has come near to you? Because this God is still in the neighborhood. He's still knocking on the door of our hearts saying, if you believe in me, you will be my beloved child. If you put your faith and trust in God, you are a child of God. God has done all of the work. He moved into the neighborhood. He accomplished everything on the cross. He defeated death in his resurrection. He purchased our salvation. Do you want it? Do you want a new start? Do you want your past forgiven? You want a relationship with the God who loves you, the God who created you, the God who moved into the neighborhood, God himself to purchase your salvation. He wants to wash you white as snow. He desires to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. Yes, your sin. Yes, that deepest part of you that you hope no one ever finds out about, he forgives even that. The darkest sin within us is nothing compared to the grace of God because God himself died for you. He went to the cross for you. Suffered for you. If you don't have a personal and active relationship with God, why not start today? Why not today? If you're interested in that as we do communion, I just encourage you to come grab me on the front row, and I'd love to pray with you. For the rest of us who do have a personal and active relationship with Jesus, I want to read John 1, 6 through 8 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. For those of us who know the light of Jesus, who have a relationship with God, we are to tell the world We are to be his heralds, to tell of his works, to tell of his good news, to let the light of Jesus shine within us so that others might see that light, so that others might come to know him. And so this Advent season, I urge you to tell of the light, to speak the name of Jesus. And I want to challenge you to do one specific thing today. Right now, I want you to think of one person, you're likely already thinking about them, that you desire to come to know Jesus. One person in your life that doesn't know him, that you desire for them to know of his salvation. You got that person in your head? I encourage you to pray for them today. To pray for their salvation, to ask God to to move into their neighborhood, to show himself to them. But when Jesus finds his disciples and he tells them to pray earnestly for workers to be sent out into the harvest field, he never ends there. He always also sends them out. And so if you're going to pray for those people that you're thinking of to receive salvation, My second challenge is to tell them of Jesus. Yes, to share the gospel. Yes, that means jumping out of your comfort zone. Yes, that means you're probably going to stumble over the right words to say. It's okay. The same Holy Spirit that spoke through the apostles. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. The same Holy Spirit that has been evangelizing the world through people for 2,000 years is in you. You have all that you need to tell of God's story. And so tell the person that's on your mind. Even if you've told them a thousand times before. We learn that God is a God of patience, a God who abounds in steadfast love. And so let's be the same. Let's patiently pursue them. Let's share the good news of Jesus so that others would come to know the uncreated Son of God, the one who moved into the neighborhood, the one who stepped down from his endless throne of glory to take on flesh, to take on blood, to buy our salvation. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Eternity hangs in the balance. We're not promised tomorrow. Let's be witnesses to the light so that others can join us and celebrate and sing good tidings of the one who came. Please stand as we pray this morning. Father, we come before you. We worship you as the one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. And I know I've done a poor job describing you as Trinity this morning. And I pray that you would work in spite of me. That you would teach us that you are the uncreated one. Throughout all eternity, before anything was created, you were the Father, loving and giving life to the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And out of that love, that eternal flame of love, you desired to share it. And so you created. You made us to share your love with. And yet we rejected you. We went our own ways. We chose sin and evil in our desires. But you didn't abandon us. You didn't cast us away. You bought our salvation. You yourself came, God of God, taking on flesh so that we could be reconciled to you so that our sins could be forgiven, so that a perfect sacrifice could be made. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that this morning. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you that you have brought about our salvation. And we also cry out for the salvation of those who don't know you yet. We ask that you would move into their neighborhood, that you would knock on the door of their heart, that you would show them your goodness. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would embolden us, give us the words to say to communicate your gospel to them. We desire for people to see the light of all mankind. We desire the name of Jesus to be lifted high.
0: In Christ's name that we pray.